He's reminding them God is going to fix it all, the second coming. And the wickedness that we see, and it looks like we're losing. There's a God in heaven who's sovereign, who's ruling, and he's not sweating up there in the throne room this morning. He is coming back, and he's going to fix every wrong. Hello, and welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church in Beaufort, South Carolina. Today, Pastor Carl will conclude his sermon on developing patience from the book of James, chapter 5, verses 7 through 12. Let's join Pastor Carl as he continues his lesson in James chapter 5. Now the unbeliever stands at the great white throne judgment. And so the scripture repeatedly says that men, lost people, will be judged according to their deeds. Why? Because their deeds will show that they're lost, that they've never been born again. But two, God will mete out his justice according to their works. Hell, in a general way, is terrible, awful for anyone who goes. But in the perfect justice of God, it will not be the same. We, too, will have a judgment, but not the great white throne judgment. And so Paul, uh, John says in John 5, 24, Truly, truly, I say to you, Jesus is speaking, He who hears my word and believes him who sent me, has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed out of death into life. So on the one hand, there is no judgment for the believer for sin, but there is a judgment for service. And Jesus underscored that truth. And Paul does in a passage like 2 Corinthians 5, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may be recompensed for the deeds in his body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. It's the judgment of the just. And God is going to evaluate your works, be they good or bad. Contextually, good works are those that are done in the power of the Spirit for the glory of God. Bad works are those that are done when you're out of fellowship with God. And a mark of carnality, among other things, is complaining, it's grumbling. And when we have perspective and we are exercising biblical patience, then we won't be complaint heads. Now, look, whatever you do for the Lord will never be lost. He looks at every deed you've done, every act of service you've completed. I was speaking to a pastor's wife yesterday, and they were talking, she was talking about how, you know, it's difficult. I felt her pain. How difficult it is to get people to work for their vacation Bible school. She said, we have two groups of people in the church. One group who says, I'm past that. I'm not in that season of life. I'm not going to serve those kids. And the other are the young moms who say, I need a break. I don't want to serve. I just want to drop them off. And I said, well, you know, your husband needs to, as I'm sure he is, teach the standard. People who think that way are about as unchristlike as you can get. I know not everyone can serve at vacation Bible school. You know, I was so blessed so many years by guys like Fred Eady who'd take a week's vacation 
to come serve at Vacation Bible School. And other men who would take their vacation time. You are never more like Christ than when you care for children. And listen, whatever you put into the soil of God's service, he is going to look at it and reward it. Behold, I am coming quickly, and my reward is with me to render to every man according to what he has done. Now remember that therefore, verse 7 goes back to these Christians who are being unfairly treated. And he says, look, find comfort. The Lord's coming. Find comfort when he comes. He is going to reward you for your service. I know sometimes I have to counsel people in very difficult circumstances. Maybe they haven't experienced the same kind of persecution that he's describing here, where they don't get a paycheck to feed their family, but they're persecuted nonetheless. And, and, they, and they just feel kind of like ripped off. And I'll tell them over and over again, you have to forgive. You've got to forgive. What did the Lord Jesus say from the cross? Father, forgive them. They do not know what they're doing. What did Peter say? While suff- while, and while being reviled, he did not revile in return. And while suffering, he uttered no threats, but he kept entrusting himself to God who judges righteously. Jesus didn't say, hey, boy, wait. My father's going to get you. He prayed for them. He entrusted himself to the living God. And he forgave them. Paul gives the same advice to the church at Thessalonica. He said, for after all, it is only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you. And to give relief to those who are afflicted to us as well when the Lord Jesus will be revealed with his mighty angels in flaming fire. He is going to deal out retribution to those who do not know God, to those who do not obey the gospel of the Lord Jesus. And these will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. He is reminding them God is going to fix it all, the second coming. And the wickedness that we see, and it looks like we're losing. There's a God in heaven who's sovereign who's ruling, and he's not sweating up there in the throne room this morning. He is coming back, and he's going to fix every wrong. And so I've had to counsel women over the years who were raped and abused, and I will tell them you have to forgive. I've had to help countless single moms He made a commitment to me at the marriage altar, and some other pretty face came along, and he dumped me, and I'm all alone. you got to forgive. I had to deal with a dad who I, I, I was privileged to lead his wife to Christ, and she was coming to the discovery class. She was growing, but she had this troublesome daughter. This was almost 28 years ago, and that troublesome daughter got two of her friends and murdered her own mother. I said, you have to forgive. Some of you have experienced racial injustices. You've got to forgive. Be patient like the farmer who's waiting for his crop, just knowing that the righteous judge is coming back and he is going to fix it. And no smart lawyer will be able to get anybody off. Brothers, you worked hard all day and they didn't pay you. 
but your cry has ascended up into heavens, and God is going to fix it. And so be patient, brethren. The judge is standing right at the door. God has all the facts. He's weighing it. Now, there's a second illustration. I'm almost done. It seems like I'm just on point one, but... Like a patient farmer wait for the return of God, like the prophets wait for the justice of God to help us to get a handle on patience and on strengthening our hearts and not complaining. He directs us to the Old Testament prophets, men of God, that these dispersed Jewish believers knew well. As an example, brethren, of suffering and patience, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. What a powerful example they are from the very first prophet, Abel. What happened to Abel? He was murdered. By the way, you don't know he's a prophet from the Old Testament, but Jesus in the New Testament tells us he was the very first prophet. And he preached, and for preaching, his own brother murdered him. First prophet was Abel. The last Old Testament prophet was John the Baptist. And he got his head taken off. And so he's saying, look at the prophets. Think about Jesus when he described the Pharisees in his day. He said, you are the sons of those who murdered the prophets. There when he wept over Jerusalem, making this city symbolic of the entire nation, at that place he said, this is a city who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. Stephen, he charges the Supreme Court of Israel, the Sanhedrin. He says, which one of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? God himself says of the prophet Moses in describing his flock, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Elijah, we studied him, did a whole series on him. He faced the hostility of Ahab and Jezebel. Jeremiah had opposition. We often dub him the weeping prophet. Micah, he's ridiculed and slandered. Amos and Haggai, all they're doing is obeying God, and they suffer for it greatly. Ezekiel, he has to endure the death of his wife because during the course of his ministry, as he has this inconsolable grief, God uses that as an illustration of how grieved he is over the disobedience of the nation. As I mentioned, John the Baptist, all he did was preach about forgiveness that would come through the Messiah, and they took his head off. If you go over just a couple pages to the left, to Hebrews chapter 11. Look at this summary of such men. Hebrews 11, and look, if you will, in this great chapter on faith at verse 36. And others experienced mockings and scourgings. Yes, also chains and imprisonment. Verse 37, they were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were tempted, they were put to death with the sword, they went about in sheepskins, in goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, ill-treated, and then he just has to pause because he's overwhelmed. Men of whom the world is, was not worthy, wandering in deserts, in mountains, and caves, and holes in the ground, and all these, having gained approval through their faith, did not receive what was promised. You talk about heartache. So why would James use the prophets? Because nearly every single prophet that died, died without the fulfillment of the promises that they preached about. God said to a guy like Abraham, he was a prophet too. 
Abraham, I got a piece of property for you. In fact, here's the dimensions of it. And through your seed, Abraham is going to come the Savior of the world. And he never sees the fulfillment of either promise, but he dies in faith. Or you take Isaiah, who traditionally is identified as the one in the Hebrews text as being sawn in two, or Zechariah, the son of Joyadea, whom we know for sure, the Bible says he was stoned to death, or Jeremiah, who's thrown into a muddy cistern, and there's no resolution, but there are examples of men of God who died without a resolution and they didn't let it affect their hearts and their walks with the Lord. And he says, strengthen yourself by looking and considering these examples. Listen, if we're told to be like the prophets, there are two truths that these men clung to. Number one was that someday God would fix the wrongs, and that's one of their underlying messages. But number two, they believed in the 50-20 principle. And it helped them to patiently endure. I did a whole series once on Joseph. And remember, he was a guy who... His brothers sold him into slavery. He lost his youth at home. He was separated from his family. He grew up in a strange country. He was sold as a slave. Finally, someone took notice of him, gave him a better job, but then his boss's wife accused him of rape. He's thrown into prison. He's neglected for years. He interprets the dream of someone who has greatly helped. He's forgotten. I mean, you talk about a man who could be cynical and bitter and angry. But he wasn't, and God in his perfect time makes him second in command over all Egypt. And when he meets his brothers, he said, what you meant for evil, Genesis 50, 20, God meant for good. And that's really what these guys were like. And they are worth your consideration this morning because they saw the big picture. Finally, like the patient farmer, wait for the return of the Lord. Like the prophets, wait for the justice of God. But now, third, like righteous Job, wait for the blessing of God. Like righteous Job, wait for the blessing of God. Look at verse 11. We count those blessed who endured. You have heard of the endurance of Job and have seen the outcome of the Lord's dealings, that the Lord is full of compassion and is merciful. In other words, when we consider those who have endured, we count them blessed. Intuitively, those who suffer for the sake of righteousness, we esteem them. We, we set them aside in a special category that they endured so faithfully for the Lord. But now, he's taking us to Job because he wants us to consider, are we going to just bless those or do we want to be a part of those who are blessed? And that's why he goes past the prophets and he goes to Job because the prophets never saw the blessing. Whereas Job did. And we will ultimately see the blessing as well, just like Job. Hold your finger here and go to the book of Job. There's no slides for this. I hope you bring a Bible. Go to Job chapter 1. If you're new to the Bible, find the Psalms. It's about dead center. And then go to the book right before it, and you'll be in Job chapter 1. Go to Job chapter 1, if you will. The book starts out where you're taken behind the scenes to what is unfolding in heaven. And in Job 1 and in verse 9, it says, Then Satan answered the Lord, Does Job fear God for nothing? 
Have you not made a hedge about him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. But put forth your hand now and touch all that he has and he will surely curse you to your face. What's he doing? He's saying the only reason Job serves you is because you bought him off. You blessed him. Take it away. You'll see he doesn't really love you. By the way, diabolo, devil, means to slander, to defame. And that's why he is called the accuser of the brethren in the Revelation. There's only actually three times in all the Bible. You see his activity throughout the Bible. But there's only three times in all the Bible where you actually get to hear the voice of Satan. And in each case, he slanders. The first time, if you remember, he's in the Garden of Eden. He's saying, Eve, God ripped you off. He's holding back. He slanders God before man. The second time you hear the voice of the devil is here in the book of Job, where he slanders man before God. He does just the opposite. He does just the opposite of what he did with Eve. And then the third time, if you remember, he slanders the God-man there in the temptation, Matthew 4, Luke 4. And so in Eden, he says to Eve, God is not good enough. And here in the book of Job, he says God is too good. And so he is full of slander. Look at verse 12. Then the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your power. Only do not put your hand on him. So Satan departed from the presence of the Lord. It's a beautiful afternoon, and everything comes unglued. Satan liquidates his property, his sons, his daughters, everything he has. And look at his response in verse 21. He said, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return there. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. And we sang it this morning, blessed be the name of the Lord. Back in heaven, chapter 2, verse one, again, there was a day when the sons of God, the B'nai Elohim, again, a reference to angels, came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them to present himself before the Lord. The Lord said to Satan, where have you come from? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, from roaming about on the earth and walking about on it. The Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? For there is no one like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, fearing God and turning away from evil. And he still holds fast his integrity, although you incited me against him to ruin without cause. Satan answered the Lord and said, skin for skin. Yes, all that a man has, he will give for his life. Job isn't anything great. If you touch his person, you just watch what happens. So he's given permission not to wipe him out, but to touch his person. And he's covered over with these skin ulcers. And what's Job's response in 1315? Though he slay me, yet I will trust him. Many people have an if kind of faith. If you do this, Lord, then I will do that. But Job has a though kind of faith. Though you slay me, I will still trust him. Here's the book of Job. I taught it back in the 1990s. One through three, it's a picture of Job's distress. Four through 37, Job's defense. And so remember, he's got these three friends. And these three friends are trying to accuse Job of unrighteousness. They say, hey, Job, the reason you've got so much trouble in your life is there's sin in your life. 
So cough it up. Tell us what it is that you are doing that no one else knows. And then finally, you come to chapters 38 through 42 where you have Job's deliverance, and it's as if God says, hey, when you guys run out of gas, I've got something to say. And God speaks. And listen to what Job 42, 7 says, my wrath is kindled against you. That was Eliphaz. And against your two friends, Bildad and Zophar, because you have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. By the way, I hear people, especially the prosperity theologians, quote Job all the time. And they're quoting often these three guys that God says have not spoken accurately of him. And they do it, of course, to build a false theology. Look, when you quote Job, make sure you're not quoting these that God didn't approve of. But these guys were involved in the height of prosperity theology. And, of course... They basically taught you're blessed if you're obedient and righteous, and that's how these con artists can justify their millions of dollars and their private jets and their $20 million houses because they say it's a sign that I am righteous. Now back to James. I'm just about done. You have heard of the endurance of Job and have seen the outcome of the Lord's dealings, that the Lord is full of compassion and mercy. What's the outcome of his dealings? That he's full of compassion and mercy. That's the ultimate picture of every patient believer, that someday ultimately we will be vindicated, that your endurance is going to pay off. Just be patient. And Satan uses impatience as a powerful weapon Moses, in his impatience, lost the opportunity to enter the promised land. Abraham, in his impatience, had Ishmael, and forever they've been plaguing the Jewish people. But when Satan attacks, cling to the fact, in spite of the circumstances, that God never changes, that he is full of compassion and mercy. Verse 12, but above all, my brethren, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or with any oath, but, let, but your yes is to be yes and your no, no, so that you may not fall under judgment. Why does he drop that in here? Because when we're suffering, we are likely to make some kind of a deal with God. When he says do not swear, of course you know he's not referring to foul language. He's talking about making an oath. And so your wife is sick, your child is near death, and you say, Dear God, if you will just somehow intervene and spare their life, I will do such and such for you. And God intervenes, and you shortly forget. And God says, Let your yes be yes, and your no be no. When you say yes, mean yes. When you say no, mean no. And I appreciate people that I can relate to on that level. When they say no, they mean no. When they say yes, I can count on it. I don't have to go back and ask them a second time. Then he adds, So that you may not fall under judgment. That's another way of simply saying, So that you don't get into double trouble with God. In other words, if you add some kind of an oath, some kind of a promise, as the Jews would typically do, to some commitment that they were going to make, but they didn't really mean it, it was just a cover-up, it was just adding piosity to their hypocrisy, 
it doesn't mean anything. Now, we may not have oaths like they did in the first century, like the Jewish believers do, but we sign our income tax. And we stand at some marriage altar and we say, Lord, until death do us part or until Christ returns, I'm here no matter what. And God says, let your yes be yes and your no, no. Otherwise, he said, we are going to fall under judgment. What does he mean by that? That we're going to go to hell? Of course not. That would contradict what he's already taught in this epistle and the rest of the New Testament. He's speaking about the discipline of God. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11, if we judge ourselves rightly, we would not be judged. How are we going to apply this? Three applications. Number one, like the patient farmer, wait for the return of God. Like the patient farmer, wait for the return of God. We need to respond properly because someday the sufferings of this life will end and someday we will give an account. But just know God is in charge. We have to wait for his harvest time. Secondly, like the prophets of old, wait for the justice of God. Like the prophets who did not waver no matter what. Remember, a day is coming when the judge will return when he will right every wrong. Application number three, like righteous Job, wait for the blessing of God. In the end, and I say in the end, God's ultimate mercy and compassion will be fully displayed to his people. We need to work like the farmer. We need to witness and to be willing to suffer like the prophets. And we will ultimately be rewarded like Job. Everything he had was doubled. And someday Jesus said, no one has left father and mother and houses. We're not only in this life, but in the life to come. You'll be blessed a hundred times over. Now, Father, I don't know what some people are going through today, but you do. And it's so easy to capitulate to the spirit of the age and to participate in complaining and griping and groaning instead of with a renewed mind, with the mind of Christ, fixated on the truth of Scripture, responding as he would respond. Now, I know without a birth from above, this is impossible. So I pray for someone today who's never received Jesus that they would become a Christian today. You said today is the day of salvation. Help someone to call upon Jesus in faith. Most listening have done that. But help us to learn from the farmer. Help us to learn from the prophets. Help us to learn from Job. These three enduring examples that you've given us that we might display the character of Jesus Christ. And we ask it in his name and for his honor. Amen. As Pastor Carl reminds us, in the end, God's ultimate mercy and compassion will be displayed to his people and we can find comfort in the Lord. If you enjoyed today's message, you can order a CD or DVD copy by calling Search the Scriptures at 877-787-7478 and requesting program James 013. Please remember, you can support the ministry of Search the Scriptures by calling 
or you can give online at searchthescriptures.org. Your generous donation plays an important role in providing biblical teaching and spreading the gospel. We hope that you will join us tomorrow as we continue to search the scriptures.